I'm Chris Rhodes. Um, I'm currently uh, Chair Coordinator of Transitions and Reading. I'm actually an independent consultant. I deal with energy issues of uh, various kinds. Uh, I'm a former academic, but uh, I decided to uh, branch out and do uh, some other things uh, with my life, including uh, getting involved with uh, transition, prompted actually by some research I was doing into the origins of petroleum. And then I came across peak oil in the middle of all this, and that rather changed my thinking about uh, a lot of things, basically. <laughs> it does tend to do yes. that, yes. Yes, um, indeed. You wrote a piece that was on Energy Bulletin recently that, 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 that came from your blog where you were reflecting on what seemed to you to be the, the causes behind the spectacular uh, recent plummeting of the oil price, and that's something that you then uh, wrote up uh, as, an, as under the guise of our transition agony aunt uh, recently. Could you give us just your thoughts on why we've seen a fall from $148 a couple of years ago down to less than 50 now? Hmm. I mean, it, it's been an astonishing journey, really. I mean, the, the original um, hike up to uh, practically $150 uh, for Brent crude was amazing. It was uh, to do with a combination of factors, uh, but really um, the uh, demand was ahead of supply. And you don't need much, actually. Um, supply over demand or demand over supply. One percent either way can really shove the price up or down. And the, uh, the US dollar uh, was in a, a certain situation too. It was uh, weak at the time. And a combination of these factors shoved the, uh, the price of oil right up. Then we had the economic catastrophe. And uh, as always, when you have an economic um, problem, uh, a great slowdown, because everything that we do requires oil. And then that demand for oil uh, falls and uh, the price uh, plummets. And then we had a recovery. Uh, the Chinese economy was uh, ramping ahead. And a combination of uh, various uh, factors uh, preserved the, the demand for oil. And that uh, sort of drove the price up above $100 and kept it going that way. Of course, uh, there was the, uh, the fall uh, in the, uh, the output of oil from Libya. Uh, that that uh, certainly uh, had an impact on the, the whole equation. And things seemed to be uh, sort of uh, trotting along quite uh, happily with a tight market. The oil was uh, above 100 I think it was $115 a barrel um, June of last year. And then suddenly, uh, something really started to go uh, pear-shaped in terms of the oil price. And there are various conspiracy theories around about people trying to destroy other people's economies. I, I try and st steer away from conspiracy theories. But um, the most sensible explanation uh, that I, I can come up with is that indeed the world economy is slowing. The Chinese economy has uh, slowed uh, considerably. Things aren't so good in Europe. So the demand for oil has actually uh, fallen, but yet uh, supply is way up. Um, the oil has come back out of Iraq and out of Libya. Um, the U.S. production of shale oil uh, is about three and a half million barrels a day. And the Saudis, who produce uh, a third of OPEC's oil, um, have said, well, no, right, we're not. OPEC is not going to um, pull back on oil production. So we've got uh, an oversupply against demand and the uh, force, the uh, demand uh, supply force, has pushed the oil price uh, way down. And 
it's not until that glut is absorbed um, that anything will happen. But I don't believe that uh, we're going to have this situation for too much longer because because the oil price is so low. Um, this has caused a lot of oil companies to pull back on their uh, their investment in new production. So if they're not investing now, they've pulled back 150 billion worth of production um, this year. So a year or so down the line then the, the overall global oil production is going to be uh, decreased accordingly. And what we've got to look at is that um, the world existing oil production is uh, falling by about three and a half million barrels a day, which means we've got to find a new Saudi Arabia's worth of production about every three or four years, and mostly from unconventional sources. So it really does have to absorb that uh, glut and uh, fairly rapidly. So I would predict the price of oil is going to go back up again. Uh, how high is uh, hard to predict, probably impossible to predict. But I think this is a, a temporary situation. Peak oil is real. And uh, the existing conventional production did peak uh, probably the best part of 10 years ago now. So uh, I think that's where we're standing at the moment. So the fact that, uh, but does, I, you know, uh, uh, what was it called? Um, Oh God, my brain's gone completely empty. Uh, Matthew, shit, what's he called? Matthew Sims, was Simmons, he? Simmons, Simmons, Matt Simmons, Simmons yes. who wrote his book about the twilight of of oil in Saudi Arabia, right. and uh, you know the fact that actually production has been able to ramp up and that they feel they have reserves to hold out as long as it takes. Do you think that actually some of those uh, kind of forecasts in in terms of Peak oil and 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 lack of availability were maybe slightly over uh, overdone. It's not played out exactly as was anticipated. I mean, the original idea, of course, was well due to the difficulty increasingly in getting the stuff out of the ground. It would peak, but it's mean more complex than that. I know the Saudis, I've forgotten the name of the, the field, but it was a field that's full of uh, pretty filthy oil, which is full of metals and all kinds of stuff. This was mothballed, um, you know, decades back, but now they are producing from that now. And uh, I think a lot of production has been possible because the price of oil did go up so high. So what's happening uh, there, but also the whole of the fracking industry. If the price of oil hadn't gone up to uh, the best part of $100 and then more than that, then nobody would have invested money. No oil companies would have invested in production because it would have been a money loser. And now apparently with the low oil price, um, so I read uh, yesterday, 97% of all uh, shale fracking uh, projects are now... Um, basically money losers. So I can't see that's going to continue for, for too much longer. Mm. And I think what we can say is, okay, we've seen the, the, oil, the oil price plummet um, because of this um, oversupply against demand, but production costs are still high. And we're not going to continue to uh, produce oil until the price goes back up above the, uh, the, the break-even uh, cost of production. And the unconventional oil sources tend to be more expensive to uh, produce from. They cost more energy, a lower um, net energy return. They're more difficult. They require more advanced technology. And it's, it's overall really a, um, a less uh, 
I would say beneficial, but it, it, it's a poorer investment uh, really than, than conventional oil. So we're trying to fill up this great hole, as I say, at one Saudi Arabia's worth of production every three years, which would sound to me like five Saudi Arabia's worth of production by 2030, because time's moving on. It's 2015 already. 2030 is not so far away, is it, compared to how it seemed to be uh, not that long ago. Mm. And it's going to be a more difficult and uh, expensive procedure. So we are uh, using up quite naturally the uh, the easy uh, to get stuff, the cheaper to produce stuff. And we're trying to fill that, that hole with more difficult and more expensive stuff. I mean, the Saudis can produce oil still for, oh, $10 a barrel. But of course, they need it to be $100 to uh, balance their national economy. And this is true of many countries. But Saudi at least has deep pockets. So they can actually weather this for, for some time. Whereas someone like Venezuela, they get about 50% of their GDP from uh, selling oil. But of course, they don't have deep pockets. So their economy, I think, is likely to suffer, um, well, badly and um, soon. Mm. You mentioned uh, when we talked before that you'd been to some seminars around fracking over the last few weeks. I wonder what's your sense you know, with the infrastructure bill having gone through and uh, the government talking about a green light kind of go ahead for fracking of, of actually the reality of whether we'll see large scale fracking in this country. It's a very interesting question. I mean, the only place that uh, fracking has been done on the grand scale uh, so far is America. And really, however people may feel about uh, hydrocarbons, and what they've accomplished in terms of production is astonishing because something like 30% of American uh, domestic oil production now comes out of shale. This is tight oil, shale oil produced uh, by uh, fracking uh, shale. Not kerogen, that's, a, that's another story altogether and about 45% uh, of American uh, domestic gas production also comes out of shale at the moment. So it's astonishing. So the only other place we can look uh, to uh, beyond America um, is Poland, where there's been uh, some significant attempt to uh, produce uh, gas, at least. And it's really not played out as well as was hoped. Poland was really um, looked at as uh, something that, that was going to be the, um, the European uh, giant because they had uh, apparently more reserves than anybody else did. And then the Polish uh, Geological Institute revised those res reserves down to about 10% uh, of what they thought they had originally. Um, Chevron and other majors have been pulled out of Poland. They drilled 66 wells. I don't think any of them gained a decent production rate. The geology is more complex and more difficult in Europe from in America. And even in America, um, where, okay, naturally they've drilled into the sweet spots. That's where they've got the good production, both for oil and gas. But drilling elsewhere, it seems the energy returns are becoming poorer. So I think if we're going to start doing this in Britain, uh, well, uh, it, it may not play out as, as well as hoped. People I was talking to at uh, some of these workshops, um, they were very interesting in what they said. These were people who were sort of on the edge of the industry, at least, and saying, well, yes, it is a great big gamble. But of course, if it comes off, then there is money to be made. But 
nobody, again, is going to seriously uh, invest uh, with very low oil and gas prices because the oil and the gas prices tend to be uh, connected. If one is low, so is the other and uh, vice versa. So I think that unless the, uh, the oil price goes back up again, and I think it has to for the reasons I've said, supply and demand, then we're not likely to get uh, much uh, serious investment. But there was a report out, uh, a parliamentary uh, bill, um, the, uh, yeah, the environmental uh, audit um, came out last Monday and their conclusion, well, you're, you're probably well aware of it, that basically what fracking we do should be very limited, mostly because of the CO2 emissions uh, aspect, but we're not likely to have uh, a UK uh, shale industry for about 10 to 15 years. Now, by that stage, uh, if that's true, then we will be way down in the uh, the likely production of oil across the world. And people have various views as to, even in America, how long uh, that uh, production is going to play out for. Um, you know, that there's uh, David Hughes came out with a report for the Post Carbon Institute, didn't he? And he is somewhat less optimistic, shall we say, than uh, some of the other uh, figures that have come out, for example, from the um, US Department of Energy. Who are they? The um, Energy Information Administration. I was confusing with the French counterpart. But um, yeah, basically that uh, there's no guarantee that there will be sustained production out to, to 2040, because even that assumes that there's going to be better technology developed along the way and the geology will be better understood. Um, I found it interesting. I discovered uh, quite recently um, a presentation by Chevron for their investors. And basically they were saying, well, we need to find another 200 billion barrels of oil by 2030. Well, that's interesting itself. And then on a slide, they show, as I say, the decline rate of uh, production of conventional oil, which is this needing to find a new Saudi every uh, three years worth of production. But of course, it's not only that they've got to find 200 billion barrels uh, more oil, they've got to find more of it and produce more of it year on year. And then they go on and they look at where that oil is going to come from. Well, a little uh, titsy bit is going to be uh, conventional oil. They reckon about 40% is going to come from uh, deep water drilling, maybe 20% um, from uh, shale fracking. And a few other other things to to make the whole lot up some tar sands uh, production increase but if you look at the amount of oil um that is reckoned to be uh, produced over time from fracking even the um eia's figures um there's not as much oil uh, to be had so they reckon as Chevron does. And so you start to think, yep, there are a lot of uncertainties about how there is, how much there is of it to be had, and of course, what the production rate is likely to be. You don't know what the production rate is going to be until you start drilling. Neither do you know the quality of the, uh, the material that you're going to recover. So I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, and I, I do have my doubts that we're going to have a massive scale um, shale industry in Britain anytime soon. And what I fear is that if we really go out for this and it doesn't work and we've ignored renewables and other ways of doing things, which basically involve uh, cutting the amount of energy we use, then we may have uh, backed the wrong horse in the, in the race.
Mm-hmm. And uh, you you wrote recently about the Eakins and McGlade study about keeping fossil fuels under the ground. How what does that add and bring to these discussions? Do you think? Mm. It's interesting. I mean, the discussions really so far are right. Okay, can we maintain oil production? Um, if yes, how can we do it? Then we start to see. Yep, yeah, it's going to have to be unconventional oil. It's going to be expensive uh, to do. Difficult. Maybe it's not going to be possible to maintain the overall production because it, it, it's the old adage, isn't it? That it's the size of the uh, the tap more than the size of the tank that matters, and these are more difficult to to produce from. And you're trying to maintain or grow production from them to maintain overall production in the face of what you're losing from uh, conventional uh, oil. But of course, um, yeah, the uh, the paper in Nature that you refer to concluded uh, largely we've got to stop burning about um, well it's basically we've got to leave two-thirds of our fossil fuels in the ground i looked at it in terms of production rate and it seemed to me that uh, we would have to reduce our our rate of burning coal by about two-thirds the oil supply they reckon would only need to go down by five percent or so the, the production but the gas supply the gas production would have to increase by maybe 60 or so percent. So for that to work, um, the analysis that they presented, um, it, it seemed to be that we would need to grow our, our gas supply, which sounds quite reasonable to me. Of course, where is the gas going to come from? Uh, shale, presumably, and uh, coal bed methane. But again, other unconventional sources, which are uh, more difficult to, to produce from. So we really are um, in the scales of uh, a great balance between uh, what might be done in terms of production and of course uh, whether that is actually desirable to to do to to uh, to grow that production rather than reducing it anyway because we are going to uh, proverbially fly the front of the planet it's interesting uh, if you look at the BP statistical review although they reckon that um, there will be certainly some substitution of coal by gas still um, by 2035 we will have increased our carbon emissions by something like 30%. So that seems to be totally um, diametrically opposite to the um, proposals of what needs to be done, according to the the analysis published in Nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, that gap that you mention and the the challenge that, that, that that paper presents, what what is it that you that you think? I mean, you know, you've you've been involved in consulting around energy, and now you give some of your time to to transition Reading as a you know the chair of the group. What's your sense of what transition brings to those conversations, to those discussions? I think what uh, transition brings, among uh, many things, uh, to these discussions, is that while mostly um, popular discourse uh, centers around where are we going to get our energy from, how are we going to grow supply, Uh, transition starts to say, well, okay, accepting that if we are going to grow any supply, but even to maintain what we have, we have to move over to lower carbon energy sources. But then transition focuses on ways of reducing energy, focuses on localization. I mean, that really came in implicitly with um, looking 
hardened firmly in the face of peak oil. But there are so other, so many other aspects. So we have local community uh, activities, uh, producing more of what we need at the local level, establishing resilience, as we, we use the word. But really, it's about, in a growing way, um, managing to use our resources more efficiently and in fact, in terms of energy, it's facing up to the fact that we are going to be in a situation where we will have less energy available to us, whether that may come from carbon-free uh, or um, carbon-emitting uh, sources. I think transition is about a completely different um, paradigm, really, for um, how we go about our, our lives in the future. But it's also about uh, drawing people together and finding the strengths that we have uh, within communities and at the local level. And the last question I had was, as somebody who, who's, you've been an academic for, for a long time and a writer and a researcher and a, and a consultant, what's, what, has, uh, what has getting involved in transition uh, brought to your sense of your ability to affect these issues or respond to these issues that might not have been there before. I'm wondering what what that in involvement has brought to you personally that, that the previous uh, approaches and responses might not have done. Well, I, for many years, uh, used to do terrible things. As you say, I was an academic. I used to fly around the world working on particle accelerators and uh, things like this. So my carbon footprint must have been, well, I wouldn't like to think about it. But I really wasn't thinking in these terms. And what really uh, changed uh, my, my attitude and my outlook, as I said, was in my uh, researching into the origins of petroleum, biotic, abiotic, etc., coming across a, a page um, on the internet. It might have been by Matt Simmons, actually, but peak oil. And I was just transfixed as the implications slowly started to drop in my head like the proverbial penny. And immediately it became obvious we needed to, to relocalize. And then that naturally caused me to gravitate um, beyond my writing on the subject, etc., to getting involved with, with a local uh, transition group. But what transition um, has given me is a sense of hope, actually, that by, I mean, I feel that we either all stand or we all fall together as a human uh, society. And I think that from this grassroots getting together and sharing skills and hope and resources, we may actually get through what is likely to be quite a testing time, I think, however it unfolds.